Welcome to Where the Lotus Grows, Getting Dirty and Growing Strong with Kimberly Searle and Tanya Drew. As integrative sustainable movement educators and health advocates, our goal is to provide you with evidence-based information gathered from research, experts in the field, and our personal and professional experience to help you advocate for your own health and wellness. Our mission is to collaboratively navigate the thick, muddy waters of life to empower, accept, and cultivate our most authentic selves. Hi, Courageitarians. Welcome back. Friendly reminder that show notes and resources grow on our website at wherethelotusgrows.com. Our member platform is at patreon.com backslash wherethelotusgrows. This is where you can go to donate to the show to keep us going and get a few rewards for your support. If you're wanting to engage with topics we present in a deeper way, it's a great place to go for a more immersive experience. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or subscribe at our website to get our weekly blog, personalized weekly mantra, link to listen to the show. We are so grateful for all the reviews, recommendations, member support, and suggestions that you provide us. Thank you, Courageitarians. We love having you as our community. Until the next time we talk. But today, we're going to talk about grief and loss. Hmm. A rather somber tone. And at the same time, I think it's something that we don't talk about enough in our society. I think if it was a little more on the surface, maybe it would um, be a little easier to handle at times. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, there are different levels of grief and um, how close you are to a particular person or subject matter with grief. And um, everybody experiences it quite different. I think oftentimes, too, we think of uh, grief as, you know, just going to the big one, which is death. However, right. we grieve many losses, like a loss of a job, um, loss of not being able to have a family, the loss of the ideal life we thought we'd create, loss of a beloved pet, um, friendship, loss of a friendship, uh, loss of a personal dream. A romantic relationship and divorce. And so what other ones can you think of that are grief? Oh, well, you, you touched on many of them. I think that is, um, you know, we, we always think or most often think of grief as death. But yeah, losing something just in general. Um, or having to give up something. Like something, there's, there's loss in when something is taken from you, you know, you, you lost your job or, or someone dumped you or, um, you know, or someone passed unexpectedly. But then there's also the loss um, and grief over things that you chose to give up or walk away from. Um, you know, maybe a relationship was too toxic and you had to leave that relationship and it was your choice, but you're still grieving that. Um, maybe you had to give up on a pet project or... Um, you know, maybe you had to, to give a beloved pet up to a shelter, um, you know, for, for their benefit or you're moving or something. You know, there's many scenarios where um, we experience grief by choice 
where the grief that we choose is still better than the grief that we experience if we stay in a situation that's unhealthy or if we um, continue to produce and pursue something that's that's no longer serving us. So I think there's a lot of different forms. And I think that when it comes to expressing grief and thinking about grief, um, from an outside perspective, I think, you know, m- most people are respectful if there's been a, a loss via death. But I don't think that people think of grief when they, you know, don't look at someone else and have empathy of grief when they, you know, they had to to end a relationship or, or lost a job or something. I don't think, like, that's the first thought that we come to is, oh, this person is grieving as mm-hmm. quickly as when we know that they've lost a person to death or illness. Yeah, I think when it's a a human being or maybe even a pet, people have more patience and tolerance. And then Mm -hmm. when it's something that um, isn't, it's an object or a status in life or a dream, people are more intolerant um, and tend to be more sympathetic versus empathetic um, with the person. You know, the good news is is that not only do we survive grief, grief, but many of us um, emerge on the other side changed for the better. And Mm -hmm. uh, Lawrence G. Colon uh, at the University of North Carolina talked about this when he um, started to describe the phenomena of post-traumatic growth. Uh, A lot of times we hear it as post-traumatic disorder, right? Stress. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, he started to talk about it in a growth aspect. And I think that applies to major life events. That um, it challenges your emotional balance, beliefs, and personal narrative. And that can catapult you into that kind of forced growth stage. Yeah, I I think sometimes it can. I I think that um, even with the big one, even with death and loss, sometimes uh, we can see even if it's coming to terms with the person not suffering anymore or coming to terms with, um, you know, finding peace surrounding, even though you're always going to miss that person and long for that person, um, maybe making that a catalyst for doing something. Many people, you know, create foundations and, and do great things um, in the name of a person that they've lost. Like, I feel like that happens a lot. So when you're talking about post-traumatic growth, like taking something tragic and turning it into something bigger, I think there's um, lots of opportunity uh, around grief and loss for that to happen. Yeah, I, I like this quote by um, Sufi Epigram. When the heart grieves over what it has lost, the spirit rejoices over what it has left. Oh, that's very pretty. I like that. And so I I think sometimes, you know, the heart can really break, but perhaps the loss, you know, is leading us to growth and then the spirit rejoices because now it's, you know, overcome a hurdle or or gets to that that, um, sadness was kind of the jumping board to the next step of life. Or, or even appreciation for what short time you had with that person or, or position or whatever, you know, the appreciation for the, for the memory, like that can be there as well with acceptance. So when you talk about grief, I think most famously, um, uh, 
I forget her first name. I'm sorry. I think it's Allison. It's Elizabeth. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, back in 1969, wrote a, a profound book on death and dying um, that I had to read in undergrad. But she's the one that coined the five stages of grief and loss that are very well known today and kind of... Um, almost a given whenever you talk about grief and loss, whenever uh, you do experience the, the big loss, especially. Um, and the five stages of grief and loss are denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And people who are grieving do not necessarily go through these stages in that order um, or experience all of them fully. But those are the five stages that are kind of required um, with acceptance kind of being the ultimate uh, outcome. So acceptance typically does come at, a, you know, towards the end, but it doesn't mean that you don't go back and revisit the anger or the bargaining or the depression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, those things can, can go back and forth. But when you're thinking about, like when you, that beautiful Sufi epigram quote, um, what it made me think of was, you know, just valuing the time that you had either with that person or in that relationship or in that job or with that dream. Um, once you're through those stages of grief, acceptance kind of comes with being able to reflect back with gratitude, uh, what you, at least what you were able to have. So that, that what's left <laughs> is what the spirit can rejoice over. I really, yes. I really like that. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been in therapy for grief before and I've had a therapist say to me, um, because I think, I think when you are living a, a spiritual journey, kind of like you and I are through our, our yogic lifestyle, um, you know, sometimes when there is grief, you know, I, you go through the denial and isolation and then you might go to bargaining, but then you can also on the flip side find the gratitude or what you've learned out of the item. And mm -hmm. then I've had them say, you know, I still need you to experience anger because if you don't allow the anger or acknowledge the anger, then I will definitely lose you longer in the depression stage, which I think is kind of interesting mm. too, that even though they might not go in the order in which you listed, there is, you still need to have room for the five stages right right and accept that they're all kind of part of the package which you know that re leads me to my next point is awareness and mindfulness and grief and these are the seeds of transformation so grief forces you to change by assigning you unexpected roles and removing the physical emotional and material resources you once had and changing your assumption world into an unfamiliar landscape. And this new territory introduces to yourself the process of becoming um, who you're going to be through your senses. So it's during this time of slowing down in the grief process that you're able to turn inward for more self-inquiry and hear that whispered wisdom of your true self, which has long been forgotten now and um, remembered. And in yoga, we would call that uh, durka or pain, disappointment. And this is something that we all experience no matter how we try to avoid it. It's something that we can plan on being part of our life. And trying to get quiet and notice your natural breath, 
um, the experience and sensations that you're having in your body, then you can start to ask yourself um, these statements. My body in this moment feels, and then you would fill in the blank, and my breath is like, and you would fill in the blank. Mm, I think that's a really nice exercise to kind of sit with your grief because it would, it would allow you to turn inward. Um, I think practices in like that can be very useful. Um, and of course, you have to be in a specific stage to kind of deal with that. Because if you're in denial or isolation, then, then you may not be um, dealing with that. If you're in the bargaining stage, it's kind of hard to sit with yourself. But certainly as you're moving through, you know, anger and depression and acceptance, being able to sit with that might be easier in those stages. Um, I think today, you know, talking about different tools and different ways of dealing with grief, I think there's also the reminder too, as with everything, the more Buddhist approach of just, you know, nothing is permanent. So everything changes and we have to kind of accept not only are we going to lose others, um, someday others will lose us, you know. And, and when you think about even in relationships or even in um, friendship situations, job situations, you know, there may be people mourning us that we don't even realize mourn us. You know, maybe you got a promotion and you left your old job and there's somebody back there who's like, man, I really wish Kim was still here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's, there, there's, it's, it's a continuous cycle and it happens all the time. Like we are constantly um, going through cycles of change and dealing with that change and accepting that impermanence can be hard. It can. And it, you know, if we go back to um, the loss of life, I think that it's, it's something we can all count on, but I, I find it interesting how some people can talk about their end of their life and some people cannot. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, you know, like my dad's side of the family, they, they tend to have a slower grieving process. And my mom's side of the family, my cousin and I laugh because we're like, it's like speed grief. Like, you know, it, uh, it, we're done within 48 hours of the death. Right. And, and it's, you know, really quite interesting. And, and I think about it a lot myself. Um, what do I want the end of my life to be like? And for example, Nick does not want any um, calling hours. He says, like, I don't want to be on display. And I understand that, that uh, feeling. But I mm-hmm. also think about the people that are left behind, like you mentioned, that perhaps are going through their own grief. And I know that that allows mm-hmm. them closure. And so I don't want to take mm-hmm. that away from, from someone. Um, but I want to become a tree. I, I'm all into the more natural, <laughs> um, uh, you know, type of burial system. So. Same, same. To wander off into the weeds a little bit. They now have a suit with uh, fungi on it that you can be embalmed in that will help decompose you faster. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of that, but... <laughs> Yeah, like the wandering uh, off and the tree or the the 
um, the tree, they put you in a bag, so the body decomposes, mm-hmm. and there's a seed leading in there, and you can become a tree, or you can become mushrooms. I don't really want to be mushrooms, because I, I kind of struggle with the fact, I'm not sure somebody, I want somebody eating me, um, but I would love <laughs> to be a big, beautiful tree, trees to me more so, even though somebody might cut me down at some point, but um, yeah, sure. I'd rather be a tree. <laughs> nice. I, I like that. I, I think, you know, as you were also, as you were saying, you know, how your family deals with it, I think, too, there's there's a suspension of belief for some people. So, so um, thinking about your own death, you know, and some people would just rather postpone that thought altogether. And um, especially when you're younger, you're like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. And it's kind of built into your psyche. And as you get a little older and your mortality starts to knock on your door a little bit, um, it is something that you start to have to think about. And some people sweep it away. And then interestingly enough, some people really embrace it. So like the, the kind of stoic movement that's going on, we've, we've mentioned the works of Ryan Holiday before. Um, he believes in the stoic belief of memento morte, which is, you know, we all die. And we should remember that, like, on a regular basis. And his uh, theory behind this, or the Stoic theory behind remembering this, is it helps keep you in the moment and keeps you treasuring that you're alive. Mm -hmm. So the idea of contemplating death makes you value life more, which I think is also a very interesting philosophy to take, like a different side of the coin, if you will. Um. To, to think about death in that way. Yeah, I think it was pretty early on in my management career that I was at a leadership, you know, kind of a continuing education thing, and they had us write our obituary, like the people say, about us. And that really got me to stop and think about, huh, you know, how do I want to be remembered? Am I living and managing and being a leader um, in the manner of which I would like my legacy to be remembered. And, and now that I've have a business, you know, it's more about legacy for me. Uh, what is my piece that I'm contributing to the puzzle and therapeutic movement, um, and to my community. And I think those things do help you value the smaller things in life. And Mm -hmm. even to remember, I used to always hate to wake up. I'm, you know, I was I just didn't want to get up by an alarm system. I love morning, but I don't, I don't, I'm kind of agitated by the alarm. And so I've, you know, thank goodness phones have increased and technology has increased because now I wake up to birds chirping, which is great. And, um, nice. but Technicon has had this thing where he was like, you know, I, I posted it like right on my ceiling. And when I would wake up, it was like smile because you get a whole new day, you know? And so I always remember that, like, to be grateful that I got another day because I never know when that's going to stop. Right. No, I, I love and appreciate that. I think when you think about just the psychology and the life stages that we go through, um, you and I are kind of approaching that middle age or, okay, we're not approaching it. We're middle-aged people. <laughs> um, I'm going to come to terms with that. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) but like this idea so throughout the life stages you know if you think about like behavioral development you know kids are very self-centered um when they they have no concept of anyone else when they're 
or babies and toddlers. And then there's a little bit of a concept as they get a little bit older, but they're still kind of manipulating the system to be about them. And, you know, the teenage brain is very, um, not only is it very kind of narcissistic, but it's also very um, invincible feeling. And uh, that, you know, kind of bleeds into the 20s. And it's not until you hit your 30s and beyond that you start to think about mortality. But even more, once you get beyond 30, that's when you start thinking about your legacy and what you're leaving behind and how to touch and influence people on life. And you touched on that. And while you were saying that, I was like, this is what's really interesting about this. What I found really interesting because, you know, you learn those stages of development. I think they're Erickson's stages of development. You learn that in basic psychology. But what the thing that I thought was interesting is speaking that was I was like, oh, but when you're younger and you're invincible, then time is so slow and it feels like forever. It's going to be forever before you can drive. It's going to be forever before you're 21. And it's going to be forever before you're 25 or whatever that is. And you hit a point right about the time that that mortality hits in, right about the time you hit 30 and you think, oh no, time starts to speed up. And then it starts flying by. And I can personally look back at when I was 10 and think crazy ridiculously away like oh my god that's gonna take me forever (laughs) to get there (laughs) and now I am approaching 40 and I see 50 like oh that's the next stop on the bus (laughs) like I'm on the train and I'm gonna stop here at 40 and you know switch trains (laughs) and the next train to 50 is like you know 20 minutes away So it just seems like time also goes by so fast. And I think that part of that is you start to, your values start to shift to those things, to your legacy, to how you want to be remembered, um, you know, and you're much more outwardly, you know, to the impact that you can make on others. And so I just um, thought of that as you were speaking that that's a a really big part too. So I would guess that experiencing grief at different stages of life are probably different. Mm -hmm. You know, how you, how you grieve when you're young is probably very different than how you grieve as an an older person. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, the different types of loss also important, but. Yeah. Rumi has this quote, don't turn away and keep looking at the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. And mm-hmm. I think if we move away from grief of, of death and maybe look at some of the other things, not that, you know, it doesn't apply to that too, but, you know, sometimes we take that grief and we stuff it down because maybe it's not as socially acceptable to grieve that mm-hmm. um, loss. And then, you know, if you think about it as a wound, it becomes oozy and infected and, so on and so forth. But when we look at that hurt spot and we clean it up and we heal from it and we go through those stages of grief, then light can you know, enter back into us. And, and that takes courage. This is um, strength to face our pain and the mm-hmm. wisdom to honor our vulnerability. And strength and vulnerability are shadow sisters. One cannot exist without the other. And grief is a dance between those two. Our vulnerability opens us to the fullness of the human experience and our inner strength supports us as we face our loss. So learning to walk that middle path and we learn from these two 
powerful teachers of strength and vulnerability. And Margaret Strope uh, in the Netherlands developed what she called the dual process model of coping with bereavement. And it's not a prescription for how to grieve, but rather an observation of how we adapt to loss. And this dual process model illustrates that healthy adaptation to grief involves moving back and forth between loss-oriented coping and restoration-oriented coping. So the feelings and behavior associated with loss itself. And that um, mm -hmm. restoration-oriented process occurs as we reposition ourselves in the landscape of life after loss. We take on new roles, we learn new skills, we create a new identity, and all of these cultivate inner strength. So taking walks in nature and noticing the opposites in nature is a way to even allow yourself to practice this. Oh, I like, I like the idea of that practice. I wasn't aware of Strope's uh, work, but that sounds very interesting as far as going back and forth between oriented and restoration. I have had a few significant losses in my life, um, but in particular, um, the year before we started grad school, then I lost my little brother to an automobile accident. And so not only was it um, sudden and unexpected, which can be harder for the grief process than, um, you know, if someone is ill or elderly, there might be a little bit, grief had already kind of started. Um, but when it's a shocking accident, then um, that whole denial thing <laughs> and the whole bargaining thing are a little more um, relevant, I think. And so uh, that was really difficult. And I like the idea. I like the idea of um, that moving back and forth between oriented coping and restoration um, oriented coping, like loss oriented and restoration oriented, because I definitely felt that I experienced that. There was, there was very loss-oriented um, and even helping others grieve because obviously, even though I lost my brother, there was, there was a part of me that my parents had lost a child. So there was a part of me that really had to... Um, I didn't set my grief aside. I still grieved, but I tried to hold space for them grieving because I felt like... And, and maybe it's cliche to say, maybe it's not even fair. Maybe it's not a healthy way to process it. But I felt like their grief had to be greater than mine, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, mm -hmm. because they lost a child. And even though I lost a sibling, and obviously that is, you know, and we've been thick as thieves always, then um, I felt like there had to be a little extra space for me to be a little stronger for them. And to process my grief, my grief um, slightly separately. So that loss going back and forth between those two things and then the restoration orientation coping um, kind of came with like some lifestyle changes because my brother wasn't there. Then I had to step up and do some things and, and be some things that I wouldn't have had to do if he was still around. So I see... Um, both of those processes and I definitely saw myself taking on new roles and I'm taking up new skills um, I'm taking on as you were saying a new identity the identity was kind of going from uh, sharing responsibility with my brother especially for my parents 
to being um, an only child, taking care of both of them whenever they needed, for yeah. whenever they needed. That's so. a big shift, yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that yeah, that was a nice uh, segue into my next point, which is compassion and forgiveness. And mm-hmm. um, Sharon Salzberg said, in loving kindness, our minds are open and expansive, spacious enough to contain all the pleasures and pains of life fully lived. And that sounds like the space that you've um, held not only for yourself, but for your parents, too. Yeah. If we talk about compassion and forgiveness, this starts um, with loving yourself because uh, when you learn how, how to send yourself loving kindness to yourself first, that is when your pain becomes more bearable. And when you send loving kindness to yourself and others, then you've created space for yourself to heal because compassion and forgiveness allow you to open your heart and recognize that we all have one thing in common, and that's the desire to be happy, safe, and free from suffering. The fourth Dalai Lama wrote this, Compassion is the wish for another being to be free from suffering. Love is wanting them to have happiness. And perhaps doing offering yourself the forgiveness with both hands on your heart And saying, I acknowledge I have caused myself harm in the past, either intentionally or unintentionally. And now I am here in the present, ready to forgive. I release all the blame. I choose to forgive myself. May I be happy. May I know peace. May I be free from suffering. You can say these same phrases for may you or may all beings be, but the the point here is that grief is with you, and so this starts with you. Oh, that's beautiful, Kim. I love that. The the meta kind of meditation of loving kindness is well known for generating um, compassion and forgiveness for others, but I, I absolutely agree with you in this scenario and a specifically around grief what a helpful tool to use um to to start with yourself and to give yourself that compassion and loving kindness and forgiveness grief usually takes about two years to really get in and go through those processes of stage stages of grief and you know and after two years you'll still have floods of it that Mm -hmm. come but I really think in that first you know, year or two focusing on your heartache. You know, I want to, I really want people to hear, but it's okay to give yourself permission to, to take that time for you. Right. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's a really, um, I, I think that's a powerful statement. I think it's beautiful that that happens. I do want to say that, that for people who maybe, um, there, that two years is a great timeline because it, it allows you to fully work with yourself. I also don't want, though, for people who feel like they've experienced their grief and they're ready to move forward sooner, want them to feel bad or guilty that maybe they it didn't take them the two years. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, like, sure. I, I really want to make sure for our listeners that they know that the grief process, like that can go either way. So if you're in the third year of grief or if you're a year out and you feel like you've fully processed, 
whatever it is that you need to process that everyone's path is unique. But I, I do like that you gave that timeline just in general, because the idea behind it would be to set ease, to set people at ease and give them the, the space to kind of do that work that you're suggesting. Um, I also like, as I was thinking, as we'd been discussing that grief isn't always a loss or, you know, isn't always death. This meditation could be really useful for other losses. So giving yourself the loving kindness and compassion meditation or going through this little prayer to yourself um, could be really helpful for the end of a relationship or the loss of a job or the, you know, the idea that you have to shift gears and go somewhere different because an idea isn't going to work like you thought it was going to. I think this is still an amazing tool for that. So I, I just had to say that. I really appreciate that, Kim. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree with you. Well, I, I kind of wanted to end this session with a poem by Dana Folds. And it's from uh, her book, Go In and In, Poems from the Heart of Yoga. And the poem is called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try quarreling a lightning bolt containing a tornado dam a stream and it will create a new channel resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet allow and grace will carry you to higher ground the only safety lies in letting it all in the wild with the weak the fear fantasies failures and success when loss rips off the door of the heart sadness veils your vision with despair practice becomes simply bearing the truth in the choice to let go of your known way of being the whole world is revealed to your new eyes wow that was beautiful thank you kim well we hope you courageitarians uh, hung in there with us and enjoyed our conversation on grief and loss. If you have anything that you'd like to add or questions or comments, or just to get a copy of, uh, or a resource so where you can get that beautiful poem, find us on all things Where the Lotus Grows on social media, wherethelotusgrows.com on the interwebs, and uh, hit us up or give us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. We'll catch you next time, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Where the Lotus Grows. Join us in further conversations. We believe that you bring valuable knowledge to this community. You can find us at wherethelotusgrows.com, Where the Lotus Grows on Instagram and Facebook, or Twitter, Where the Lotus G1, because we were not on top of that one. Remember that though we are professionals in our field, the topics discussed and or advice given is general information and not intended to treat or diagnose. Please seek the guidance of a medical, integrative health, bodywork, or yoga therapy professional for a full evaluation. If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform.